Blog Talk Radio. Hey, it's Dr. Ross Green here. Time for another edition of Helping Behaviorally Challenging Students. Coming to you live here from the offices of Lives in the Balance in Portland, Maine. Happy to be with you again today. We don't have too many of these programs left for the year. I think, um, if my math is right, only three more programs after today. And we'll probably be primarily focused on any town elementary for those three programs. Not today, though. Today is an educator's panel day. We think. Uh, I already know that two of our educator panel members, Tom and Nina, aren't going to be able to join in because of meetings, which of course sometimes happens in schools. Sometimes meetings get in the way of the things that we um, really want to be doing. Of course, that's a leap of faith. I don't know if they really want to be doing the program today or not, but they both have meetings. So we're going to wait. I think that Carol is going to be calling in um, from the Pacific Northwest, and we can do an educator's panel with just her, which, of course, um, would not exactly be true to the panel notion, but um, Carol always has fascinating things uh, to say. And, um, well, we'll see if we're going to get Carol today can tell you a little bit about uh, my week last week and the issues that um, came up. I, um, on Wednesday, was in a southwestern state, and Carol is now with us. I think I'll tell her about it as well. Uh, Carol, how are you? I'm great. How are you? Well, I'm well. We don't have a panel today. I think you probably know that from reading your email, yes? No. Well, no, we do have a panel, but we don't have our other two panel members. So you won't have any risk of interruption today except from me, which is, um, you know, always a risk as well. And (laughs) as you may may know, I was in your neck of the woods on Friday. Were you aware of that? You were. I I heard some folks that were quite disappointed that they didn't make it into the session, but they uh, they know of your work and they had hoped. I'm sure there were some people that I know that did come to the session. There were. um, Your name came up. Um, <laughs> uh, and um, all, all good in a, in things, a positive of course, way. right? And I thought you were going to say that people were disappointed in the talk, but um, no, I'm no, glad no. you didn't say that. <laughs> um, no, lots of school folks there, and um, all very eager to learn more about why challenging kids are challenging and about why um, um, what they can do differently. And of course, it, doing the Doing things differently is extremely hard. What I want to um, tell everybody who's listening to this program is that um, I'm going to be posting the most recent program that I just basically recorded an hour ago on issues in children's mental health. And I interviewed an old friend of mine named Tony Wagner, who's pretty much at the cutting edge of what skills kids are going to need to do well in the future. And we were talking about how um, a lot of those skills aren't really necessarily the focal point of schools these days with emphasis on um, memorization and high-stakes testing. And I thought it was one of the best issues in children's mental health programs of the year. Tony is not primarily focused on challenging behavior, 
uh, in schools, but um, uh, we were able to make the connection between many of the things that he was talking about um, among the skills that uh, have been identified as crucial for surviving in the future, uh, especially in his work in the employment realm, are things like critical thinking and problem solving. Uh, And included within that is asking the right questions and being able to identify what the problem is in the first place and collaboration. So clearly a tie-in. Right. Um, uh, Even though his gig isn't behavior, so I definitely want to encourage people who listen to this program to listen to that one. I'm going to be trying to post it on the Lives in a Balance website um, as soon as we're done with this one, we'll see what else pops up onto my radar screen to prevent me from doing it. Um, but lots of folks in uh, British Columbia who were interested in learning more about the model. Um, two days before that, I was in uh, a southwestern state that um, working with a school system that has very high rates of restraint and seclusion in its special education programs. Um, and the goal is to get them from lots of restraints and seclusions to virtually none. Um, and they are very enthusiastic about getting that ball rolling. And I just wanted to share uh, with you and our listeners um, what um, we had talked about with them. And we basically said that there were two. This came up on the parents' panel this morning. Uh you know, there's basically two things that are required, and I wonder if you would add to this list, for making solving problems collaboratively fly in a school. One, having people who are proficient in doing it. Mm-hmm. Two, having the structures in place that give them the opportunity and the structures to do it. Um, people could be proficient in solving problems collaboratively, plan B, uh, but if they don't have the structures in place, it's probably not going to happen. Mm-hmm. And people can have the structures in place, but if they're not proficient in solving problems collaboratively, it's probably not going to happen either. Um, so we have we, th- those can be our springboard to what we want to talk about today, but we can also talk about anything you had on your mind today, given that we have no interference today from Tom and <laughs> Well, do you do you remember, Ross, what... Uh what prompted you to invite me onto the program in the first place? That very scary plane ride we were both on on our way to Powell River. Was it That's Powell right. River? That's right. And, and the fact that you and I talked once we arrived safely at Powell, Powell River, which was um, in doubt for about an hour <laughs> um, while we were on that very small prop uh, plane uh, in the midst of a thunderstorm over the yeah. mountains of British Columbia. I thought we would never be found that's um, right. But, of course, we didn't know that we were on the plane together until we met the next day and shared, uh, you know, battle that stories. That near-death experience. <laughs> exactly. Um, but and in no, our discussion, you, you we I, sat in the very small waiting room to get onto another very small plane to go back. We um, did, indeed. It came up that I was a new principal and, and looking to implement uh, solving problems collaboratively in a new school with a new staff and kind of the challenges that come with that. Well, the... The exciting news is that I'm going to be moving into yet another new school in the fall. And so oh I'm my. going to get a, a do-over. <laughs> I'm going to get a do-over in some ways of um, kind of bringing 
my beliefs and philosophies and and uh, understandings about um, you know challenging kids and what works in terms of helping them actually learn and grow and um, learn skills and develop strategies and with a whole new place. Outstanding! Very exciting. So I was I was actually hoping if uh, Nina and Tom had been on today to to get some advice because I didn't really get a chance to. Um, you know, talk it over with anyone the first time around, and so I'm being, I'm trying to be very reflective and think about, you know, what I did with this school and how things worked and the bumps and the successes along the way, and how can I translate that into a, a successful implementation in a new place. What are your thoughts? Well, <laughs> I have many thoughts. I know that uh, it's not something, anything within a school that that is kind of considered a top-down initiative or or belief to coming like gangbusters and say this is the way it is and this is the way it's going to be it's not as effective as perhaps doing things in a more thoughtful collaborative way myself i mean thinking about just the word collaboration you know you can't uh come in and say we're going to collaborate with kids and then you're going to do it this way because i said so it's a bit of a of a hypocritical way to do things so i'm 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 brainstorming you're talking about uh both skills for people who want to implement the the process and structures that will help support that to happen. So I'm thinking about what that might look like um, in a new school. Tell us. Any thoughts? (laughs) Any thoughts? Well, it's a a similar size school to this. Um, So I'm not miraculously going to have, um, you know, scads of, of new staff or support staff that are going to be able to help provide you know, release time for teachers while we work with students. I know in a, I have a colleague here in Surrey who's using the the process with her school, and her implementation has been school wide. And she's fortunate in having a a very skilled and dedicated counselor who often will um, release teachers or or get the process rolling with the kids, and then hand over to teachers and helps coach them and has run morning sessions. And trying to think about what that might look like um, for myself in a school. I haven't really gotten to that point yet. I've had it's only been a couple of weeks since I knew that I was moving. So some of the finer points of the of the change have yet to be ironed out over the next couple of months. What um things would you want to correct? In other words, um one of the things Tony Wagner just said on this last program, I'm gonna actually have to go back and listen to it again because he was really making some very important points um one of the uh points he he was making is that um you can't do it alone mm-hmm. um and you know one thing that's been clear to me since i originated this model is that i couldn't do it alone um but that the people who were out there t- teaching other people to do it had to know what they were doing um, otherwise, you might not be alone, but you also have people um, spreading your model in ways that are not uh, as intended. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but I know that uh, one of the things that come up that's come up in this program before is that the person who was doing a lot of the problem solving in your building was you. Mm-hmm. Um, what are your thoughts about? Um, what you might do differently along those lines? Well, I'm. I, it depends to some degree on 
the the skill set and where people are in the new in the new school. Um, there may be people who are already familiar with the model or familiar with the underlying philosophies about um, you know kids doing well if they can and that um, behavior is kind of any kind of uh, developmental process. And so you know that whole set of lenses where we're looking at behavior as um, a developmental set of skills, just like reading or walking or tying shoes that, you know, we need to look at as a, de- as a developmental process. And um, so finding out from people through listening a bit more and finding out where people are in those beliefs and helping to find out where the where the foundations may lie already and then just starting to build up from there. And, and I think one of the things that I'm, I'm very aware of now um, is that um, – I have a very strong belief in the process and in the philosophy, and um, it can shake people. You know, it can it can clash quite significantly if it comes on too strong with other ways of doing things, ways of doing things that may be effective in a short term, like uh, you know, punitive consequences and uh, you know things like suspensions and detentions. Where in the short term, with some kids, they may seem to have an effect, but they're not teaching anything. So um, I think I need to just be a bit more um, patient, maybe, to to think about uh, instead of just coming over and smothering people with my enthusiasm. <laughs> you know, just being a bit more um, gentle and, and collaborative, I guess, just going back to that word, being more collaborative in the approach to what, how do things work here, what works well, where are the challenges when it comes to children's behavior and what what has been working there and what hasn't been working there, and then offering an alternative rather than just coming in and saying, this is the way it's going to be, because I say so. <laughs> mm-hmm. I Any mean, other lesson learned there, right? from your, what's that? I said it's not rocket science, really, when you come down to, to thinking about it, but sometimes in our enthusiasm and passion for things, it's easy to get uh, carried away a bit. Uh, it can happen. And you're right, enthusiasm probably isn't a bad thing, but enthusiasm doesn't resolve all woes. Um, There are things enthusiasm won't address. Um, So, yes, enthusiasm is a good thing, but it doesn't accomplish everything. And as you're saying, it can sometimes get in the way. Sometimes all the enthusiasm in the world isn't going to be persuasive to somebody who's not in the same headspace that you're in. Absolutely. So it's how do we get there? And I realized, you know, over the past three years here, I've, I've, you know, done things, I've, I've worked on building people's capacity and understanding and skills in the model. And, um, but there are still folks who kind of go, what is that that you're doing? What are you talking about? And I realized that I've, you know, it's it's difficult when you make assumptions about people's um, knowledge and skills in an area where you kind of assume that, okay, we've talked about it at staff meetings and we've got the video and we had the books and some staff came to the workshop and, you know, there's kind of a, an assumption that I made that um, that everyone was ready to move forward. And, and some people were, but definitely some weren't and um, kind of, I don't know, for, not forcing the issue. That's quite too strong, I think. But um, I don't being. I think I was a bit heavy with the implementation hmm. at first, and then I don't know. 
I mean, I've gotten I've gotten good feedback. You know, folks that feel like they're you know they had the same reaction as me that it just resonated that it's just the right thing to do with kids. Um, and then there are some folks who who I think be- believe in the under underpinning foundations, but they haven't had the experiences to have them fully believe that that it works because you know it, it is slow and it is um, it doesn't quickly and instantly solve problems for kids. I mean, it works when you're persistent at it and thoughtful and you get better at it, And um, but it doesn't have that quick fix. And sometimes the behaviors that kids show are, are so socially offensive, I guess is the way to put it, that, that offering up a slow but long-lasting solution to folks isn't exactly what they want to hear. <laughs> Well, and the slow part is in, is really important because one of the things, and I don't keep meaning to reference the prior program, but one of the things Tony and I talked about was um, people in schools these days, and I'm not sure to what degree this is so in Canada or in BC in particular, but um, in the States, people are so consumed by um, uh, high-stakes testing because job security has now been pegged to it and schools are judged on the basis of it, that um, it makes it that much harder to pull back on the reins, figure out what's really going on with a kid and take the time to figure out what's getting in a student's way. Mm -hmm. But that also translates into um, behavioral challenges because, um, you know, we we don't really have time or patience for deviations in classroom comportment. We either send them out to somebody like you or we try to deal with them very quickly, um, which doesn't tend to work. The hardest part of the whole model is the fact that it takes time to get good at it. Um, Mm -hmm. It ultimately saves time because you're solving problems and therefore um, reducing the likelihood of the behaviors that are associated with those problems. But I think that we have become very oriented toward rapid solutions and doing things that are going to work immediately. And that it shoots us in the foot every time. Well, it does. And, and you know, it is such a, uh, a seductive way of doing things because, you know, one of the, as a school administrator, one of the things that, that staff want to know is, are you someone who gets things done? Do you tackle problems are you really the buck stops here and and are you willing to you know step up and be supportive and it's hard to you know we have we have multiple allegiances we have allegiances to our staff where we we need to stand up for them and and demonstrate respect and be supportive we also have allegiances to students and parents who you know we have an, an obligation to put students at the center of our decision making but we also have to respect you know the needs of staff. They're human beings that are within our our circle of care as well. So it's it's we've talked many times about that balance of balancing the rights of a teacher to teach a class without distractions or or disruptions. We have the rights of children who are experiencing behavior problems to be taught and and be given an opportunity to be successful. We have the rights of other students who may be being hurt or offended or frightened by some children's behavior. And of course, the parents, same both both sets of parents, parents of kids who their children are struggling, and the parents of kids who are in those classrooms with those struggling kids. And 
it's uh it's having all those plates spinning in the air sometimes and and trying to find always asking yourself what is the right thing to do and a lot of times the right thing to do isn't the popular thing to do um but you, it, that's where you have to kind of hold on to the belief that in the long term this is going to help this child teach them something allow them to be successful in the future and really I, I I keep coming back to this particular statement. We work in an education system, not in a justice system. So if we want mm. to educate and teach, then that needs to be the focus. We're not we don't punish kids because they can't read. We don't tie their left hands behind them anymore to teach them to write with their right hands. You know, we take into account children's differences and we adapt to that. So uh, you know, we need to do that with behavior, but it's when that behavior becomes socially offensive that suddenly it becomes muddy. That's the hardest part. Well, which is interesting because this is easy for researchers to say, <laughs> but technically um, the fact that a child's behavior is more extreme um, doesn't make much difference at multiple levels of analysis. Namely, it doesn't say much to us about the gravity or complexity of the problem that's setting in motion the behavior. Mm-hmm. It just says that the behavior is more extreme. Um, and it makes sense why it does matter, because we need to keep kids safe. But what the field of developmental psychopathology tells us is that the extreme behaviors actually don't differ much from the less extreme behaviors. Right. Our response to those behaviors differs sometimes quite dramatically, mm-hmm. um, which is once again um, emblematic of the fact that we are much more focused on behavior than we are on the problems that are giving rise to those behaviors. Still, here in the year 2013, people are making lots of important decisions about kids based on the severity of the kid's behavior, which is the least important part. Although I understand completely that the behavior is still the most important part for a lot of people, especially since they think it's related to keeping kids in schools and other places safe. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, it's it's so take just for for giving an example, you know, like kids um swearing when they're upset. To me, I know I see that as if if a I've got a grade, you know, say a grade 5 student who is upset, there something's happening that they're anxious or stressed about and they can't handle those emotions. So, you know, a teacher asks them one thing and they swear and they say a very unacceptable word. Um, if that's just between the student and, and me or the student and a teacher, my belief and my hope is that the teacher can see past the, the word to what's going on with that kid. Wow, that kid must be pretty upset and having a really difficult time right now to be saying that. Whereas if there are other children around, then suddenly... You know, you've got parents complaining, you've got kids, you know, they see that, but then they see that there's, and I I hear this time and time again, nothing happened to the kids, so it must be okay. There's still this belief in that, that kids, the students themselves perpetuate that if nothing happens to a kid because of their behavior, then 
the behavior must be acceptable. And I've, I've, you know, teachers have voiced this to me, saying, this is what our kids are walking around saying. We need to send a message. Well, I'm trying to say the message that I'm telling them, and the message I'm sending is, I care about you more than your behavior. <laughs> but that's not a message that children even understand sometimes. You know, those children mm-hmm. who see it, they witness it, and they, you know, they see some kids fighting or, or, or you know, slamming doors or throwing chairs, and then the, the child comes back to the classroom later on, perhaps after an excellent Plan B conversation where you feel like you've really gotten to the heart of the program and there's a plan to adapt the, the child's environment in place, and but the other kids don't see that. They just see Michael got mad. Michael, I'm just using a name. Michael got mad. Michael threw a chair. Michael's back in class. Nothing happened to him. Well, next one. And so the logic goes, well, then when I'm mad, I'm going to throw a chair, even though those kids probably would never throw chairs. They say that to their teachers. They say, oh, well, nothing happened to him. Next time I'm mad, I'm going to punch someone too, even though they probably wouldn't. But then the teachers get that message and they think, oh, my God, what's happening to our school? It's turning into a zoo. It's anarchy. The kids feel like they can get away with anything. So it's been a constant um, struggle to kind of balance all those thoughts, perceptions, beliefs. It's it's a, a network that, you know, pull on one little string over here and it's got ripples everywhere else. And it's it's an interesting animal to manage (laughs) well the interesting question is um do kids really think that way um so let's say a student sees a classmate doing something that's inappropriate um do the other kids say well He's getting away with it, so I'll do it. And I can see that sometimes happening. But the bigger issue to me is it's not that he's getting away with it if you're trying to solve the problem that's setting in motion the behavior in the first place. In fact, we could we could do things to the student that are punitive that other kids see, mm-hmm. but because the punitive stuff isn't working, then while it is true that the other students see that we are doing something because the punitive stuff is usually fairly obvious, mm-hmm. what these students are also seeing, but may not necessarily realize it, is that the punitive stuff that they're seeing us doing that's convincing them that we're actually doing something <laughs> isn't working. I know. So the I know. question and- for me is... Uh, are we are, do are we in the let's prove to people that we're doing something business and um if we're not then how do we help the other kids realize that we are doing something so that they appreciate the progress that they are seeing rather than proving to them that we're doing something but shooting ourselves in the foot in the meantime yeah no i know and and you know, trying to respect children's confidentiality as well. I mean, it's I can say to a student who is saying, you know, well, nothing happened to them. You know, I can say, do you trust me? And I have a real, I mean, in three years, I've built pretty close relationships with a lot of the kids at this school. So, you know, if a child were to come to me and say, you know, I saw so-and-so punch so-and-so because he flipped out and, you know, now he's back in class. Like, why did nothing happen to him? And I, I can literally say to them, do you trust me? Yes. You know, you've been to my office before. You know what happens in there, right? What do we do in there? And they go, solve problems. 
said, so do you believe that nothing is going on with that student? Do you believe that I just talked to them and they just, they're just back with nothing happening? No. <laughs> right? But they, they kind of fall back to that default position, which I think is the same default position that staff have that, you know, we need to, to have a message, we need to have something visible so that kids can see what's going on. And maybe that comes down to, you know, if teachers are using, and this is, you know, would be my ideal, if teachers are using the process of solving problems collaboratively in their classes on a regular basis, whether it's through class meetings or one-on-one discussions with kids or little groups, right, whenever problems come up in the class, if we're modeling that, then that just becomes what we do when there's a problem. But if teachers within their own classrooms, I think, use a punitive model, like, you know, if they've got their rules and their consequences up on the wall, then it's it's hard for kids to know that there is another way. So I guess maybe it, it there's an aspect where students need to know that this is how problems get solved in our school, that, you know, whether it's a big problem or a little problem, we find out what's behind the problem and then we make a change so that the problem doesn't happen anymore. And I think that does happen in a lot of cases, but I think there's still that. And I think a lot of the families within the school, too, are they come from a bit, bit of a of a very traditional old school, you know, um, you're going to get sent to the principal's office or you're going to get a detention. And it's it's quite hard to, to um, completely change that perception and that way of thinking. Well, I've always been interested in the logic of it. Um, mm-hmm. Because I've heard it said before, but I often find that the logic falls out from under it. I think it's an easy thing to say, we need to do something so the other kids see we're doing something. We need to do something visible, right? Yeah. But we've been, we've been doing things that are visible for a really long time. Yeah. And I must say, I'm not sure the kids are all that impressed. <laughs> for all the visible things we're seeing. I think the kids are far more impressed when they see that we know what we're doing and we know how to solve problems so that they don't have to be concerned with those problems in their yeah. classmates any longer. So I've um, been underwhelmed, and of course I would be, but I've been, I find that um, we need to do something visible um, can take on cliche status. It's something people say, but I find that it frequently doesn't hold up under closer scrutiny. The important thing is to put it under closer scrutiny. But but what do you think of the doing something visible notion? Yeah, I, I and this is where I, I argue daily with myself. You know, I have those internal discussions and debates about, you know, what's the right thing to do because it's there's never usually a big neon sign pointing to it. You've got to dig it out from where it's hidden somewhere. And um you know, there is there again that's where it comes into this balance of, you know, so I, let's to give another example. I had uh some um concerns a couple weeks ago with some students who were targeting another student and um, making racist comments towards him about his religion and, and the, the visible cultural signs that he wears on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. And these are kids with multiple behavior challenges. Um, it was just manifesting itself at that point with, you know, being very rude and harassing this one boy. And 
you know, when he's in my office and and in despair, essentially, because he's being picked on and, and he feels unsafe at school and he doesn't want to come to school, somehow I need to show him and, and have him believe and know that I am... I care that his rights are very important and that I care greatly about his rights. In the meantime, those other children who were doing the harassing, I know that they have their own... I know because through having done several conversations, Plan B conversations with them, that, um, you know, they have some concerns with being able to fill their time in a productive manner. They They want to kind of impress each other and... Unfortunately, they tend to do that in a way that's um, trying to impress each other, make each other laugh, and and kind of show off for one another. So it's having that sense of self-worth without it being at the expense of others. So we've, you know, tried to come up with different activities, things for them to do. Haven't quite, you know, worked on worked it out yet. And so I, I I'm not going to give up on those kids either, right? But there's that pressure of how do I show both sets of kids that they're equally important to me and that their needs are equally important and that I want to help both of them to be successful at school and one feels scared. So it was it was hard. I did end up in that case um, doing a suspension and I the student said to me, but you told me yourself that you know that suspension isn't going to change me and I said, I know, but I also need to sh- I need to to protect this other child for a few days. And when you come back, we're going to keep working on it. But for right now, he needs to feel safe at school. So, you know, it was one of those. I know it's not. I, I I'm not deluding myself at all in in saying right. that when you come back, suddenly you're going to be treating this boy nicely. <laughs> but you know, he needed the other boy needed that opportunity to feel safe. And we've talked about this with Tom and Nina before, right, that sometimes you need right. to either give that break from the situation to kind of give everyone time to be thoughtful about what is the next step to take in, in helping to solve this problem. And, I don't know, like I said, there's no never a neon sign pointing saying the easy way, the right way, you've got to figure it out. And usually if there were neon signs, the easy way and the right way would be pointing in completely different directions. Yes, well, one thing about solving problems collaboratively, seldom is it the easy way. So at the very least, you've got a neon sign. It's certainly not pointing toward plan B, but with the easy way sign flashing at you. Um, The right way, you know, right is sort of a um, tenuous concept. Uh Um, I guess I'm more interested in the effective way. Uh Uh-huh. that's the neon sign that I'm most interested in, given that I don't think right is going to be one that's easily um, quantified, mm-hmm. but um, effective. Um, and then, then it becomes interesting because I think you would say in the example that you just gave that um, you don't believe that suspending the kid was going to be an effective way to solve the problem over the long haul but you did feel need to do something effective so that the student who was being tormented would feel safe for a few days. And then, of course, comes the only question, and that is, uh, is there anything about effective number two, um, uh, helping the student feel safe for a few days, that um, makes effective number one 
solving the problem durably so it doesn't happen anymore, less likely. And that's always the interesting question yeah. for me. I've seen kids who get, for example, you know, suspended, come back, you know, the expression is loaded for bear, mm-hmm. um, and in, in a worse place as it relates to um, collaborating with us on solving a problem. Right. Um, so if if effective number two is making effective number one harder, and I think that effective number one is the more important, what uh-huh. can we do so that this problem is solved so that we don't um, have to worry about this student being tormented at school anymore? Yeah. So safe for if safe for two days, and I you know I say the same thing about reward and punishment programs. Yeah. Um, I don't mind them so much if their effect is benign. Right. Um, you know, if it's not if it's not hurting us in any way in our efforts to solve the problem durably, then maybe no harm, no foul. It's just that there are so many ways in which reward and punishment programs make the important work even harder, either by distracting us or by causing us to focus on the wrong thing or by increasing the likelihood of challenging behavior, um, you know, now what feels effective over the short term is actually shooting us in the foot over the long haul, and those yeah. become even more difficult decisions. You know, what's interesting as you were saying that, Ross, is that um, I think the, the the one thing that allowed me to believe that I could continue to work effectively with the student using the process of solving the problems collaboratively is that because I have been working with the process with this student for the past, well, it's been about 14 months that I've known him now, um, I think we've built up a strong enough relationship that having him away from the school for a couple of days, um, he understood it. It's like he, he, he trusted me because of that relationship being built over time using the process that he knew that um, I would still be there for him and continue mm-hmm. to help him. And I think that's probably the reason that that I felt okay with it. Got it. Yeah. I mean, those, are, I the have, ha- those are the hard ones. I hadn't thought about it that way before until you, you talked about, you know, what's, what's you know, first do no harm, basically, <laughs> you know. And I think that's why I, I felt like when he came back, he wouldn't be in a worse space because he he knew that I really did have... I was. I'm on his side. I'm on all the kids' side, right? It's not taking sides, but that I was, that I meant what I said when I when I said that I was going to continue to help him. So I think that's why. Yeah, that's why it was. It was going to be okay. Yeah. Interesting. You yeah. know, it's interesting um, if it's not shooting ourselves in the foot, and if it doesn't make effective number one harder. Um, maybe not such a big deal. Yeah. I'm even more concerned when people are doing the stuff that, uh, doing the punitive stuff, and it's not even effective over the short term. Mm-hmm. And there is no long-term solution stuff going on. Yeah. And now all we got is short-term stuff that isn't working anyways, and now I'm completely pessimistic. So here, here's the cool part. You are way ahead of the game just because you're even thinking about this stuff. 
And I think it's fascinating that you have a student who's saying, but you, you said suspension wasn't going to work. <laughs> um, that, that suggests that there is an atmosphere in your school that is completely different than in buildings where many of the adults still believe that solution is the only uh, that the suspension is the only thing that's going to work. Um, so it does actually sound like you may still have some credibility with that student, and that he may understand why you had to do what you had to do. But at least you got other stuff going on that uh, gives you some hope that the problem is going to ultimately get solved over the long haul, anyways. Yeah. Yeah, and it's uh, like I said, I am. I I don't know if it's. Um, it's definitely something that I know has made a huge difference in my work in the school is by by using the process of solving problems collaboratively. I have developed really good relationships with some of those kids that are the most challenging. And at times it's a bit of a weight to carry because I know sometimes those kids, you know, they want to come and spend a long time talking with me. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, 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 I love that. I think it's, a huge part of the work where if kids can trust their school principal and, and be willing to come to them and talk about what's bugging them and be honest. I mean, it's such a, that's half your work right there is, is getting kids to trust and, and know that you're there to help them. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's, that'll be a big priority for me in the new school as well, but it's going to be hard to give up 280 really good relationships here. <laughs> oh, I can only imagine. <laughs> Yeah, but, um, but another school is going to benefit from your wisdom and all the thinking that you've done about this, and that's pretty cool, too. It is very cool. And uh, I know you're going to have a chance on uh, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday this week to spread the word to a whole new group of people in the beautiful city of Winnipeg. In the beautiful city of Winnipeg. Well, I will be arriving Tuesday night, and... Um, very much looking forward to having uh, a group of folks who are interested in learning more about the model and getting better and better at it. And we'll have three whole days together, um, and that should be great as well. I know that you're bringing a few folks from your current building, yes? Well, there's two of us. There's myself and uh, one of my colleagues who's actually at another school. I got it. So from your school yeah. system. That's right. Perfect. Yeah, and I think we're. Uh, I think what we're looking forward to specifically is that we've both attended the one-day workshops. I think a couple of times, and so I think we're both looking forward to uh, going a bit more in depth in actually being able to hone our own skills in using the process and uh, finding out um, ways to use it with some kids who who may have different barriers, such as language delays or or developmental disabilities or or whatnot. So. Yes, and that's the that. beauty it's the beauty of the three-day training. When I'm doing a one-dayer, I'm trying to pound as much information into one day as I possibly can and am too ambitious and I'm trying to get too much in in one day and therefore there's not much time for processing and not much time for questions. The beauty of the advanced training is that we have lots of videos that we watch that permit me to show lots of different examples of things going on within Plan B, especially the empathy step, um, but also that there's the, the, the best part of the advanced training. What makes every advanced training is the questions and the participants, and so I always look forward to them. I'm doing one in Saskatoon 
the following week. Um, so I will be out in the prairies of Canada uh, for two straight weeks trying to help people solve problems collaboratively and hone their skills. So it should be fun. Excellent. And it's not supposed well, to wanna, snow. So. I want to thank you for participating in the educators panel this year, and I hope that you will do it again next year. I hope that we can sign you up for that, even though you'll be in a new building and you'll be dealing with all of that. But you'll have to let me know when we are in Winnipeg together. Sure. Um, but I think it's a great, been a great year for the educators panel. We've covered a lot of ground, and um, I'm looking forward to doing it again next year. And I'm sure you're looking forward to having the summer off um, and recharging your batteries a little bit. It's going to be fantastic. Good. Well, we're going to call it a year for the educators panel. Carol, thank you very much again. Always a pleasure, Ross. And we will thank Tom and Nina in absentia. Um, thank you all for listening. We're going to call it a day for today, but we will be I will be back again next week with Anytown Elementary, um, listening to some more of their recordings and giving them some more feedback. I hope you're enjoying that. Take care.